0: Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, available on radio and podcasts. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and it is so great to be with you again this week. As part of our Smithsonian Associates author interview series, our guest today on the Not Old Better Show is best-selling author Garrett Graff. Garrett Graff is a previous guest on the show, very popular with our Not Old Better Show audience, and he's back to talk about his new book, Watergate, A New History. Now, the best and fullest account of the Watergate crisis, one unlikely to be surpassed anytime soon, is available, and we're talking to the author today, Garrett Graff. I've had a chance to read Garrett Graff's new book, Watergate, A New History, and this is an excellent book for all audiences, but... Our Not Old Better Show audience will remember well the history of Watergate, President Nixon's harsh fall from grace, and genuinely relate to these stories of our country's survival and triumph through one of its most challenging periods. Garrett Graff himself has an excellent, impressive history and is today a magazine journalist and historian. Garrett Graff has spent more than a dozen years covering politics, technology, and national security. He's written for publications from Wired to the New York Times and served as the editor of two of Washington's most prestigious magazines, Washingtonian and Politico magazine. For all of Richard Nixon's achievements, the sometimes unbelievable, always lurid, Watergate scandal forever stains his reputation. Garrett Graff sees the crisis as the result of amateurish fumbling rather than criminal forethought, but he attributes to the Nixon administration the darker, racialized, nativist, fear-mongering strain of the Republican Party and the American politics that would, a half-century later, find its natural conclusion in Donald Trump. Let's listen now from Garrett Graff's new book, A Brief Moment in Time from the pre-Nixon, pre-Watergate days that heavily influenced what was to come.
1: As the 37th occupant of his office, Richard Nixon had settled into the White House under a new reality. Washington, D.C. had changed dramatically since World War II as what had once been a relatively sleepy southern town conducting part-time business had morphed into the all-consuming locus of federal power directing the world's largest economy and driving foreign affairs the world over. With that shift and the massive and ever-swelling bureaucracy that came with it, the presidency had changed too. What for much of America's first two centuries had been the office tasked with executing policy and spending money decided and set by Congress had seen that power dynamic reverse and instead now piloted the national agenda itself. It was a job now far too big for one man, even as the White House absorbed, stole, and agglomerated still more power and personnel. To Nixon, figuring out how to staff the oversized presidency, whom to trust, how to inspire them, and manage them, consumed far too much energy. It would be goddamn easy to run this office if you didn't have to deal with people, he lamented. He also knew he had big shoes to fill and equally big problems to address. His predecessor, Lyndon Johnson, had built one of the most ambitious domestic agendas of all time, overseeing the implementation of sweeping civil rights legislation and the Great Society. But Vietnam had so quickly and thoroughly crushed his presidency and broken his soul that he chose not to even run for re-election. The promise of prosperity for white Americans at home, of suburban houses, two-car garages, and new shiny appliances like televisions, seemed to retreat among growing economic unease in the U.S. and military pessimism abroad. The confidence of the early 60s, the belief in an inevitable destiny, the redress of old injustice, and the attainment of new heights, was being displaced by insecurity, apprehension about the future, fragmenting, often angry, sometimes violent, division, wrote historian Richard Goodwin. In fact, Nixon's rise had been enabled by that very sense that the country was losing its way. The campaign year began with the seizing of the USS Pueblo by North Korea, the disastrous Tet Offensive in Vietnam, and Johnson's resulting announcement that he wouldn't seek or accept another term as president, a political earthquake overshadowed just days later by the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis. On the campaign trail that night in Indiana, Bobby Kennedy calmed a volatile crowd but violent riots broke out in a hundred American cities elsewhere. The National Guard and the U.S. Army patrolled the streets of Washington, D.C. to bring the looting and arson under control, and the scars and hulks from those fires would persist in the Capitol until the 2000s. Then, a little more than two months after that night, Kennedy himself was assassinated after winning the California presidential primary. That summer, as the Democrats gathered in Chicago to nominate LBJ's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, Mayor Richard Daley's police rampaged through the streets, beating anti-war protesters on live TV in what a later investigation would famously dub a police riot. As the upheaval rippled through politics, voters, or at least many Southern voters, turned against the liberal dreams of the New Deal and the Great Society. The peace, love, and understanding of the age of Aquarius that had begun to characterize 60s culture turned into something darker and more selfish by the end of the decade. Lyndon Johnson's dreams of a war on poverty became instead Nixon's welfare mess. The celebration of Brown v. Board of Education became northern fights over school busing. White fears of drugs, black militants, and the new left became enshrined in calls for law and order an economy that had soared since the generation educated under the G.I. Bill, bringing millions of white families into suburban, middle-class, Cleaver family bliss, sputtered with unemployment and inflation. America had dominated the post-war world stage for two decades, but now the great democratic superpower reckoned with its own internal dissension and weakness alone. Befitting the political moment they inherited, the Nixon crew exuded a certain disdain and dourness. The enemy was liberalism in both senses, political and moral, journalists Dan Rather and Gary Paul Gates observed. They looked upon Washington as a hostile and alien city, in part because, in their judgment, it reflected the moral permissiveness that had been allowed to flourish during the Kennedy-Johnson years, and beyond that because it was situated in the hated East, the region that, again in their view, was the haven for all the forces that were tearing down America, hippies on drugs, pushy blacks, left-wing radicals, as well as the establishment groups that encouraged them, like the Kennedys and the national media. That, of course, is from the new book by Garrett Graff, Watergate, A New History.
0: You can hear more in our interview today, and Garrett Graff's contribution to this story is to bring it all together, add his sharp-eyed questions about what doesn't make sense or still needs to be known, and energetically drive forward the story of what's known. From available evidence, we'll talk about all that and more. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better show on radio and podcasts via internet phone, Garrett Graff. Garrett Graff, welcome back to the program.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here.
0: It's always so good to talk to you. I hope you and your family are all well after uh, a couple of years of uh, pandemic and COVID and all of those kinds of things. You have been a busy guy. I've got here in my hands. I, I wish you could see me holding this, but I've got. I promise you, Watergate: A New History, a wonderful book. I just am excited to talk to you about this. I can't recommend it enough to my audience. But it's it's a different account of Watergate. In fact, the title is A New History. I thought that was. Kind of interesting. This is the first one. We're almost at fifty years, I, I think. I'm, I'm by my calculation. This is the first one to be uh, written since the revelation of Deep Throat and, and many others. What was it for you about Watergate at this point in history that really drove you to write the book?
2: There were two things that really drove me to this. The first was I've spent the last, um, you know, at this point five or six years uh, covering. Trump and the Russia investigation and the Mueller investigation, um, and got really interested through that time of going back and looking at the last time our nation actually struggled with, um, you know, in, in investigation of the presidency like this. And then as I got into it, part of what really fascinated me and, and led to the book and specifically the subtitle, as you mentioned, it is Trying to understand that Watergate, this story that has been sliced and diced a thousand ways over the years, um, on the one hand, feels like a very familiar story. Like we all know the, the break-in and Woodward and Bernstein and John Dean and the urban hearings and yada, yada, yada. And Nixon resigns. But the full scope of what happened during Watergate it is much weirder and zanier and wilder than the popular history that has been handed down to us through, you know, all the president's men and Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. And so this book was really an attempt to try to tell that story, the full start-to-finish saga of Watergate soup to nuts as it unfolds from 1968 right through 1974, because what you discover is that Watergate was less an event and more a mindset. This paranoid, criminal, corrupt, conspiratorial uh, mindset and series of actions that uh, permeated the West Wing and Nixon's Oval Office throughout his presidency and, and what we, we really shorthand as this break-in on June 17th, 1972, it actually turns out to be this much stranger and bigger series of about a dozen different scandals that all unfold during the Nixon presidency. Um, uh, uh, each with, you know, semi overlapping characters, but each distinct in its own way, and, and some of which, as, as I'm sure we'll discuss, will uh, would stand on their own as some of the worst scandals in American political history, um, but for the fact that they're sort of all wrapped up in this very weird story of Watergate.
0: And the mindset, really, in my audience will remember this too, and, and this is why I've, I've enjoyed it so much, because really this scandal is it wraps up it, you know parts of vietnam it, it, there's the abuse of power all of this other stuff that was going on tell us a little bit more about what you mean with that this mindset because i think this is a really uh this is a bigger deal because we just do think of watergate just solely as the crime but no much, nixon was uh, you know at the at the heart of so many other things going on then
2: Exactly. And what you see is that uh, America really remembers Watergate as the burglary um, because that was when America first saw the scandal. And it, instead, I, I've been comparing it to it's, it's more like walking into the second or third act of a play that is already underway. And so what this book tries to do is trace that story all the way back to where it really begins, which is in the heart of the '68 campaign, where you see Richard Nixon um, battling Hubert Humphrey amid the Vietnam War. And there's this odd series of events that really have only come into focus in the last decade that are now shorthanded as the Chenault Affair where you see Richard Nixon actually interfere as a private citizen, as a presidential candidate, with the Paris peace talks, and actually encourage the South Vietnamese to keep the Vietnam War going for his own political benefit. Lyndon Johnson discovers this, um, something that, again, we've really only come to understand this event in the last 10 years. Uh, thanks to some newly declassified documents about Johnson's role, Johnson discovers this, confronts Nixon. Uh, you know, accuses him of treason, which it is. I mean, this is a private citizen interfering with, um, you know, to keep a war going that is killing American servicemen overseas. Nixon denies it in the final hours of the presidential campaign then wins. And Lyndon Johnson basically decides that he can't publicly ever say anything about this without undermining the moral authority of Richard Nixon to be president. And so they bury the whole story. But Richard Nixon knows that Johnson knows. And so he becomes paranoid that this story is going to come out. And what begins to unfold is that as the Pentagon papers are leaked totally unrelatedly in the spring of 1971, Richard Nixon goes off the deep end and is desperate to try to maintain the secrecy of this Chenault affair. And that's what ends up leading in many ways to the creation of the plumbers, the arrival of G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt and James McCord. Um, And all of these strange characters in in the president's orbit who, uh, you know, undertake this series of dirty tricks in the 72 campaign that becomes the Watergate burglary itself um, and then eventually all of these other uh, events as they unfold.
0: Again. The book Watergate, A New History is just wonderful and the research that you did is amazing. The notes – this is a little bit of a departure from, from what we're going to talk about but I, I, I like to look at notes and you have this wonderful methodology that you list in the book about the notes that you created. Did you go so far as to actually listen to – the word tapes, you know, will come to mind to my audience and Rosemary Woods. But I, did you actually listen to those tapes and read those transcripts? You, because the notes really indicate some deep, deep research into this.
2: Yeah, the the Nixon tapes, of, of course, stem from, you know, basically the heart of the fight um, uh, uh, over this whole scandal where Richard Nixon sets up this secret re- recording system um, which which I can talk more about if you want at some point, where he ends up uh, recording himself in the and his aides in the Oval Office and the residence and on telephone calls and in his hideaway office in the old Executive Office Building, and they uh, uh, are sort of largely unknown to even his closest aides, um, and then it comes out in the summer of seventy three. Amid the Watergate Senate committee hearings by Sam Irvin that there are recordings of these conversations and then the the court battle over access to those tapes really is what takes up the final year of this scandal and it it is the the Supreme Court's decision that Nixon actually has to release these tapes uh, in the summer of 74 that ultimately leads to the most incriminating evidence about Richard Nixon's involvement in the Watergate cover-up to come out. Um, the tapes remain this object of, of fascination, um, and along the way there are a bunch of scandals, some of which you hinted at there, um, uh, this 18-and-a-half-minute gap on one of the tapes in question when it appears the subject of watergate comes up. Um, it's never conclusively proved who is the person who actually, um, uh, erased that tape. Although it seems likely that it was Rosemary Woods, Nixon's uh, secretary, although perhaps even Nixon himself did it. Um, and, The tapes are, uh, you know, are one of these new sets uh, of tools and research that have come out uh, over the last couple of years. And and again, this was the first history of Watergate to ever be able to be written with the full access to the Nixon tapes, um, which have um, come out in about three volumes since um, the late 1990s uh, through the early 2015, 2016 area. And uh, what is interesting about them is they are still very contentious about what they actually say. The quality of them is not very good. Um, That was a big problem that dogged investigators back then, Um, but they remain so controversial that the Nixon Library and the National Archives have never released their own definitive transcripts. Um, and instead, have left it to scholars. Um, three of whom—Stanley uh, Cutler, um, Luke Nichter, and Douglas Sprinkley—have um, ha- edited these volumes down. And um, the the National Archives has set a uh, um, an estimate that it takes about a hundred hour, hundred man hours of time to. Uh, decipher and translate a single hour of the Nixon tapes. Um, and so you can imagine how many, you know, thousands of hours of tapes that, that is, and what that translates to. Um, but they, uh, paint this incredible portrait uh, of Nixon, um, and, uh, you know, all of his wildest schemes. Um, you know, one of the things that is interesting and that's sort of forgotten is that Nixon actually uh, didn't ever, as far as we know, um, was not aware of or ordered the Watergate burglary itself in advance. Um, The Nixon tapes, though, have him uh, ordering uh, the summer before repeatedly and quite vociferously A different burglary um a a break-in at the brookings institution the dc think tank where he thinks some of these documents relating to the chenault affair are actually being held and the white house cooks up this incredibly harebrained scheme to uh they think that these files are being held in this safe at brookings uh they come up with this plan to Firebomb the Brookings Institution, then uh, buy a fire truck and outfit it with a crew of the same Cuban burglars who end up the year following to be involved in the Watergate burglary right. itself. Have this fake fire truck respond to the bombing of the Brookings Institution, and then in the chaos, get into the building. Uh, in uniform, and break the safe open and steal the papers. And then, um, you know, this this plot uh, ends up falling apart in the summer of 71, not because it is one of the most harebrained, criminal schemes you have ever heard in your entire life and should have nothing to do with the president of the United States, let alone be happening based on his personal order. No, it falls apart because the white house turns out to be too cheap to buy the fire engine in the first place. And so, it, you know, these teeps have ended up being this incredible wealth of new information and insight into, Uh, the, the, the Nixon's mindset and his decision-making, um, and, and the sort of Watergate paranoia, the state of mind that I mentioned that leads down this path of crime and corruption and abuse of power. And I think really underscores to me one of the great lessons of Watergate that we as a country have mislearned, which is, you know, the, the lesson that anyone will tell you out of Watergate. You know, you hear crisis communications people say this all the time, is that the uh, the cover-up is always worse than the crime. But that's sort of supposed to be like, like the great lesson of Watergate. But actually, what we've learned over the last 50 years is that actually the crimes of Watergate were numerous, quite terrible, and, uh, you know, des- totally deserving of Uh, you know, severe sanctions and punishment, even of themselves. Hi, it's Paul.
0: Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything smithsonian as part of our smithsonian associates programs we're introducing you to the new smithsonian associates streaming series smithsonian a non-profit organization is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate Guest Speakers. Our audience can explore our website for more information at notold-better.com. We are with Garrett Graff. Garrett Graff is author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Only Plane in the Sky. We talked to Garrett Graff about that wonderful book. We're talking with Garrett Graff today about his new book, Watergate, A New History, the book is wonderful, and and I enjoyed it. I, I I have to say, I I I enjoyed the pictures, the black and whites, because it really just brought me back to a a time that I'd forgotten. I actually had forgotten a little bit about Martha Mitchell, and I'd like to talk to her. You mentioned Trump, and if 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 Trump had Omarosa, <laughs> maybe Nixon had Martha Mitchell, but she was a tragic character. And um, there's this great picture in the book of Martha and John Mitchell. He has his pipe and Martha has her mouth open. (laughs) And so she seems to be even there in full kind of defense mode. And for all of Nixon's accomplishments, he did surround himself with some people who produced a lot of drama and uh, martha mitchell was one of those and so maybe tell us a little bit about that story because they're just some it goes on and on about martha mitchell
2: yeah uh, martha mitchell is is one of these figures uh sort of largely lost to history but a literal giant of her era um this is the wife of john mitchell um nixon's campaign manager and, and attorney general and she becomes, in many ways, the first Republican pundit. I mean, she she is the, you know, forerunner of Rush Limbaugh, uh, you know, before talk radio really exists. And she comes to Washington, this loud, uh, uh, brash, brazen uh, woman from Arkansas. Um, she was known as the mouth of the South. And she becomes, you know, the most popular Republican figure in the country after Richard Nixon himself. I mean, she just barnstorms the country, um, you know, Republican dinners and and Republican fundraisers and and, um, develops this habit of. Um, she had a terrible problem with alcohol and she would uh, sort of sit at home, uh, in the Mitchell's Watergate condo, um, which, uh, you know, part of the, the sort of subplot or sub thread of this whole book is like, it's funny how much of the story actually takes place at the Watergate condo complex, even aside from the burglary, because so many of the, the, the condo complex that had just opened, um, when the Nixon administration arrived in town and becomes, you know, the main place where most of the Nixon administration actually lives. Um, and they, uh, so she sort of eavesdrops all night on her husband's telephone calls. And then when he goes to bed, uh, she picks up the phone and starts calling reporters, um, you know, drunk on, uh, her doers, which was her favorite drink of choice. You know, she would call up people like, uh, Helen Thomas from UPI and dish to them about everything that she knew about what was going on. Um, and, uh, she becomes this, uh, You know, hugely tragic figure in the course of the Watergate story um, where the Mitchell uh, John Mitchell first tries to cover up the um, the burglary from her there. They are out in California at a fundraiser um, when the burglars are arrested and he leaves her behind in California. Um, with a bodyguard when um, he comes back to Washington to deal with the burglary. Against her will,
1: though,
2: Um, Against her will, um, because he doesn't want her to even know about the (laughs) event because she will recognize that one of the people who's been arrested is one of her former bodyguards. And so she will instantly know that this is not some random burglary, that this was actually something being done by the campaign. Um, uh, by, by Nixon's presidential campaign. And so she finds this information out and does exactly what, uh, her husband expects that she would and calls, um, Helen Thomas at, uh, to, to begin to sort of dish about this burglary. Um, her new bodyguard in California, um, wrestles her away from the phone, rips the phone from the wall And under guard, she is held down and they shoot tranquilizers into her um, and drug her for days um, until she finally escapes and makes it to New York, where she again tries to give all sorts of press interviews about how corrupt and awful the Nixon administration actually is. um, And no one believes her um and th- th- and it becomes this sort of incredible storyline of this woman um who the nation just laughs at as she tries uh, you know to raise the flag about the corruption inside the president's reelection campaign um and the Mitchell marriage um uh, uh, um unwinds uh, quickly um they they end up getting divorced um, and uh, as John Mitchell is then, you know, arrested and indicted and, and put on trial, um, for his role in, in the Watergate's, uh, related scandals. And this ends up, um, you know, it, it, not to be too dramatic about it, but it, it ends up effectively killing her. Um, and, and she dies sort of shortly after the, um, the uh, Nixon resigns in the mid seventies, um, and uh, it, you know she and John Mitchell never, uh, you know, uh, never speak again after he, uh, you know, moves out um, in the fall of '73.
0: Just incredible stuff. L- let's jump ahead a little. I-, I could talk to you about this for a long, long time, paragraph, but I, I want to jump to the pardon by President Ford. That just seemed to be the only way out for Richard Nixon. What, what do you think would have happened to him legally, uh, criminally, had? the pardon not been put in place by president Ford.
2: Yeah. This, be, this becomes this very controversial chapter for lots of obvious reasons. Um, over the course of the, um, the Ford presidency is that one of his first moves is to offer this blanket pardon to Richard Nixon. Um, uh, because in, in his mind, he, he Gerald Ford, can't move on with his presidency if the nation is uh, distracted um, by a former president going on trial and so for him uh, he really sees this as his only option for the country and for his own presidency um, it he ultimately also um, you know effectively loses the presidency in 76 probably because of it. I mean one of the things that we forget is um you know there's sort of this sense of Gerald Ford as a pretty hapless president um but he actually came pretty close to beating Jimmy Carter in 76 to be elected in his own right um and the the margin of difference um is effectively just the, the people who refused to vote for him because of the Nixon pardon. Um, and, and because of that, even later, Gerald Ford would say he still thinks he made the right decision um, to do that, even though it, it ultimately cost him the presidency. Um, and I think, you know, as, as we sort of sit here in, in 2022, watching all of these procedures against Donald Trump, um, and, and you know wait to see how they unfurl as well. I think there's a real analog there of you know how the country um, you know can manage watching the a, a former president you know, um, face legal proceedings and potentially even trial and potentially even prison.
0: Well, Garrett Graff, uh, that just brings to mind kind of my, my final question do we expect scandal from the presidency what what's the legacy of watergate and then the similarities with trump are are noticeable
2: yeah I, I i i i've been saying that you know this is a story that uh you know takes place entirely in the 70s donald trump's name appears exactly once in the book um but he looms over every page of this story. Um, And it it is a story of, I I think in many ways, why the system worked then. Um, And you can extrapolate, you know, why the system is is not working right now. Um, You know, sort of how Trump uh, survived, uh, you know, two impeachments, The Mueller investigation and and everything um, else—you know—you can sort of follow that thread through this book, um, even though this book isn't about that at all. Um, and, And I think that the answer to it is that Watergate ends up being the most fascinating story you can tell about how power works in Washington. You know, this is the story of how all of the tools of american democracy you know uh the the different institutions of the media the justice department the fbi the house the senate the courts the supreme court the presidency um uh, all came together and uh it interacted uh, through this uh you know sorted two years Uh, of American history and ultimately forced a criminal and corrupt president from office. Um, And, and, you know, you see this incredible dance of, you know, article one of the constitution, article two of the constitution, article three of the constitution, the bill of rights, all of these tools of American democracy come together through the system of checks and balances to bring Nixon down and do something that none of those institutions would have been able to do on their own. And I think that that, to me, is what makes this such an interesting story about sort of what it takes to secure democracy and and our system of government.
0: Garrett Graff, journalist, historian, author of the new book Watergate and New History. I just have to, again, recommend this book heartily. The, The details are... Dazzling uh, Martha Mitchell, um, boyfriend and girlfriend Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodham make an appearance. Just some amazing stuff in this book, and uh, the photos uh, just add a wonderful element too. But Gary Graff, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for this book. Thanks for all the work that you you did in order to put this together because it is uh, amazing. We'll have you back again, I'm sure. But uh, good to talk to you today.
2: Thanks so much. I'm glad you're enjoying the book.
0: My thanks to best-selling author Garrett Graff, author of the new book, Watergate, A New History. We're grateful for Garrett Graff's time and all of his hard work in researching this fabulous story, a great historical account. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, stay safe, enjoy your time, and let's talk about better, the Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.